Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Jason. And today we're talking about the blues performer Ma Rainey and the recent Netflix film Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. We have some content warnings before we begin this episode. This episode will include discussions of historical and present day racism and also discussions of murder. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and check out any of our other content. So this episode, as I mentioned, is going to be about both Ma Rainey as a historical individual and also the recent film which has just come out, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I haven't structured this episode to be a biography and then a discussion of the movie. We're just kind of going to talk about it as it comes up. So with that in mind, I want to start off with a brief introduction to the film and its background. So we have some background when we're talking about it. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom premiered last month, so November 2020, in some cinemas and on the 18th of December on Netflix. The film stars Viola Davis as Ma Rainey, and it's also the last film made starring Black Panther star Chadwick Boseman before he passed away earlier this year. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is directed by African-American director George C. Wolfe. He has directed films in the past, but he's primarily best known as a theatre director, so he's won a Tony in 1993 as the director of Angels in America, a queer play about AIDS if you don't know Angels in America. So this background fits nicely with him as director of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, since the film is an adaptation of a play of the same name written by African-American playwright August Wilson. The play was first performed in 1984, and it opened on Broadway in 1985 to rave reviews. It was highly praised for the insight it provided into black experience. Frank Rich, a reviewer for the New York Times, described it as a searing inside account of what white racism does to its victims. The play received a Tony nomination for Best Play, and it also launched a very successful playwriting career for August Wilson. That's cool. The play and the film are set in 1927, and the play is one of what's known as Wilson's Century Cycle. So it's a series of 10 plays, each depicting black experience in a different decade of the 20th century. Oh, that's awesome. That's also a cool idea. Yeah. So the plays aren't intended to be historically or biographically accurate. So in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, except for Ma, none of the characters in the play are real people and the specific events of the play aren't real events. Instead, Wilson uses the various characters in these plays, in this case Ma Rainey, to explore the experience of black people just at different times in American history. So Ma Rainey's Black Bottom focuses on the experience of black blues musicians having migrated from America's South and trying to carve out a space and an identity for themselves in America's Northern states. And it also explores their exploitation and their treatment by white music producers. The play and the film take place over the course of a single recording session for Ma and her band, and it focuses on the conversations and the rising tensions between the characters as they explore the themes I mentioned of black identity and sort of black migration to the North. So it's not a plot-heavy play or film, it's much more of a character and theme play or film. I definitely didn't read anything about this movie before I started watching it, and I got like half an hour in and I was like, ah, I see, it'll be in this room for the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they don't leave that studio. Yeah, and like in the film you do see like it opens with that scene in a tent show in Georgia in kind of Mars past and you do kind of see them outside they go to a shop and buy coke or whatever obviously in the play because that's how plays are they're in that room and all you see is that room Mm -hmm. yeah so the characters are Ma her black band members so there's slow drag Cutler and Toledo and then most notably the young hot-headed trumpeter Levy, who's played by Chadwick Boseman. Levy is determined to make it on the music scene in America's northern states by transitioning from Ma's older southern style of blues to a newer, more danceable style, which was popular in northern cities like Chicago and New York. And then we also have two white characters, Ma's manager Irvin and the studio owner Mel Sturdivant, and two additional characters brought to the studio by Ma, her nephew Sylvester and her young girlfriend Dussie May. The film focuses on the interactions between all these characters and ends quite abruptly when Levy stabs and kills his bandmate Toledo after Toledo steps on his new shoes. So before I go into talking about Ma and her life, now I've given you a bit of background on the film and the play. Do you have any general thoughts before we move on? It was definitely very well acted. Yeah, they are all incredible actors. Yeah. Absolutely. 
look, without knowing anything about Ma's life, mm-hmm. the film was incredibly well acted and well shot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The performance scenes were incredible. And I quite liked some of the conversational scenes. Mm-hmm. I didn't think the film spent enough time with Ma. I definitely was going to say that as a kind of a criticism. It definitely sort of struck me as weird having been led to expect a film about Ma Rainey that the film was essentially about a fictional young man. Yeah, yeah. And actually, so August Wilson wrote an earlier draft of this play that was split really 50-50 between those scenes with the band rehearsing, focusing Mm. on Levy's character, and then scenes much more focusing on Ma and her interactions with the white producers and everything. And he took that draft and he was workshopping that draft and he realised that he just couldn't have two focuses and it wasn't working with a split focus. And he said in an interview, you know, I had to decide which way to go. And he went with the focus on Levy. But there was a draft that was much more heavily focused on Ma. I wonder why he chose to make this about Ma Rainey, who is like a famous figure, fictionalized, and then assorted fictional extra characters, rather than have a fictional blues singer. Like Ma Rainey absolutely makes like sense as sort of the historical position that she's in, kind of. Yeah, like she's not out of context but, at all. Yeah, exactly. But like she's very famous, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But she's one of any number of like African American blues singers in like similar situations navigating that like white recording company mm. situation. And it does kind of strike me is odd to bring her in when everything else about this is fictionalized like is the recording studio real is that her real manager no one is real except Ma. yeah that just seems odd to me it seems particularly odd given yeah what we've just been talking about in terms of her not really being the main character i Mm, would say yeah Um, at least in the movie i don't know the play is exactly the same yeah and if the play is exactly the same then also in the play yeah like i'm just trying to think if if it was a comparably famous figure who i had heard of previously Mm. And, you know, you go into this movie and it's named after them and they're the only real person there. Mm. And then they're kind of just like, you know, playing second string and not in the majority of the scenes. It'd be pretty weird. Yeah, no, and I agree. I agree with that. And I think the fact that, like, knowing that he had a draft that focused a lot more on Ma makes that make a bit more sense because I Mm. have never seen that draft. I don't know Mm. if that draft still exists. But I would assume that that draft, as well as giving Ma more time, would have kind of explored more of her life yeah. and how mm. she came to be there and everything and possibly, you know, had more reason to be Ma than, you know, Jane Smith, a fake blues singer who did the same thing. Yeah, yeah and I can kind of see how, like, yeah, if, if that was your original premise where you're like, oh, I'll do a play about Ma Rainey and, you know, we'll have this kind of split narrative mm. and then you've invented all these other characters to be the other half of that split narrative and then you realise that the, the story that you're trying to tell with those other characters in terms of, as you kind of said, talking about the exploitation of black people and like the you know the specific tensions that existed Mm. between those different kinds of musicians worked better when having it be between different african-american characters rather than between ma rainey and her Mm. white producers yeah i can kind of see how you then sort of start focusing on that but then like maybe you should have rethought having ma rainey in the play in the first place but i don't know like it's weird that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad as a creative decision yeah yeah and i think yeah, you're right. It is confusing if you go into the film having heard of Ma Rainey and you're kind of like, I'm going to see a movie about Ma Rainey. Yeah, that's definitely and, what happened to me. Yeah, and that's not what you see. But yeah, I don't think it's bad. It's just kind of odd when it's not what you're expecting. And I didn't know, like, I didn't know anything else about Ma Rainey except that I knew she was a blues singer. So yeah. I had no sort of, like, landmarks to be like, oh, the rest of this is made up. I was like, did some of this happen? Is some of this a real incident in her life dramatized? What's yeah. going on? Yeah, and especially because there's, like, a murder at the end. If that had happened in her life that would make perfect sense as a thing to write a play about so you'd be like oh yeah this seems like a thing that happened and that somebody decided to explore how and why this happened that was definitely something I was kind of withholding judgment on because I was like I can very much see how this could be a thing which happened in real life and came out like one of Ma Rainey's band members stabbed another over his new shoes Mm. and then them being like I want to write a play that gives that some context yeah yeah and you can see how Um, that would make sense but that never happened yeah that's an invention by August Wilson. Yeah. I did think that both the murder and the sex scene were kind of weak points of that movie. I think the sex scene worked as a kind of Oscar reel. Mm. Like, it's it's a funny scene, it's yeah. well shot, but yeah. like, yeah, I don't feel like it added anything to the movie at all. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's actually better in the play because, like, 
in the play, she kisses him, but they don't have sex. And you know how at the start she's kind of like flirtatious and she's like, oh, you know, not until you have your own band. And like in the play, she maintains that. Like she kisses him, but she's like, we're not doing anything until you have your own band. Like you're going to be famous. Okay, come back when you're famous then. And then she just kind of pulls away and that's it. And I think that makes her a more interesting character. Yeah. 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 And I also think that makes, because they never could sort of explicitly show a lot between Ma and Dussie May mm. to take her relationship with Levy to that sort of like, you know, socially recognized pinnacle of relationshipdom. <laughs> it did ring a little bit weird to me that one of them was sort of the like sexual aspect of Ma and Dussie May's relationship was shown to us through a suggestive shot between mm. Ma's knees. Yeah, yeah. Kind yeah, of. It, it does create some sort of does a hierarchy. It does create this mm. weird hierarchy. Because there's one that they feel they can show and one that they feel they can't. Yeah, no, that's true. That's and I true. feel like in that context, they would have been better to pull back on the Darcy and Levy interaction. Yeah, and again, you can see that there's this sort of missing other half to the narrative where there was sort of something hinted at but never explored about Ma Rainey and her relationship with Darcy May mm. and like what Darcy May's standing was in that mm, in that whole band relationship or that yeah. Like, group and like yeah what she sort of wanted out of her relationship with ma and her relationship with or her like you know potential thing with levy which never really got explored it just sort of came up and then was a loose thread Mm, mm. yeah you can definitely see in terms of it being a kind of more parallel character drama rather than something that is more focused on exploring the specific theme of black exploitation and the transition from black communities in the south to black communities in the north Mm. you can definitely see a different version of this play where you know probably there are two sex scenes one with ma and one with levy yeah yeah and you're really like paralleling these two characters and you're being like one of them represents this kind of old style of blues and one of them represents this new style of blues and you're like and you're kind of very explicitly paralleling them exploring Mm. the place that dossie may holds as like a young black woman in like chicago Mm. yeah yeah and yeah that was always sort of hinted at like even in her like dress and her mannerisms and things like that mm. like she had that very like sort of 20s fashionable yeah like flirtatious yeah and the actress vibe, who played um, her taylor page has talked about how she kind of envisions darcy may's character as you know being someone who's grown up in the south and her grandparents would have been slaves and she would have grown up really poor and like she's come to chicago and she's just like trying to grab hold of this lifestyle she's been promised and obviously you know as a mm. black woman in chicago that lifestyle that you've been promised is not really there for you yeah and so she's trying really hard to like be really fashionable and be this like flapper and take hold of all these opportunities whether they're like having sex with levy or going to a band recording or like all that kind of thing because that's like the promise of the northern states to her yeah Mm. and i think that that all makes a lot of sense but it wasn't in the film yeah and i I think or it was sort of like into that in the film like you could kind of put that together but it felt like it was just kind of like a bit of a sort of you know, throw the kitchen sink at it theme thing (laughs) because it was never really explored. Mm. Like that character was never really looked at particularly deeply. Yeah. And I think that is a factor of like the fact that you've got Levy and you've got Cutler and Slow Dragon Toledo and Dusty May and Ma and each of them is like representing a different black outlook on the migration or a different black experience or a different like age and therefore like a different, a different part of that history. And like you could go in and analyze each of those characters really 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 deep but you don't have time when you just sit down and watch the movie yeah i think it was interesting that what ended up being the focus of that script was levy yeah it's just yeah there's some they're like interesting characters for like there were definitely things in there where i was like i assume that this is a real person like the nephew sylvester Mm. i assumed that he was a real person none of them are real i was like he just seems plausible Mm. i would believe Mm. that she had Mm. a nephew with a starter who she was trying to help into the industry yeah i do feel like he felt like a real person in a way that to me really none of the other characters did because he didn't really have as much of a thematic role Mm. yeah i think because i think he's there to represent like ma's connection to her family and even her connection to the south and the way that black people look Mm. after Mm. each other yeah so he's there to represent what he means to ma he's not there to represent anything in his own right yeah and the the actor did quite a good job of giving him still like a bit of personality yeah you know just kind of 
being a nervous younger relative. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, like, yeah, we sort of get scenes with each of the band members Mm. where we kind of come to understand what aspect of black culture playwright is trying to get across through that character. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's move on now to Mars biography so we know what we're talking about. Yeah, please tell me more about Mars. Okay, let's talk about Ma. So most of my information about Ma comes from the 1981 book Mother of the Blues by Sandra Lee, which is based off a variety of primary sources, including interviews with people who knew Ma. It's geography time. I'm not asking Jason because Jason actually knows American geography. I mean, where's Georgia? Uh, I don't know. In the middle, <laughs> slightly eastish, bit southish. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I mean. <laughs> Jason is the Hermione of this quiz. <laughs> Jogger is on the East Coast. It's directly north of yeah. Florida and okay. below South Carolina, I believe. It has a coastline then. It has a coastline. Yeah, it does right. indeed have a coastline. Right. The key fact to know basically is that Georgia is in the South. It's really in the South. I knew that about Georgia. Yeah. So, Marini was born in Georgia on April 26th, 1886. She was named Gertrude Pridget at birth. Mm-hmm. I've chosen to call her Ma throughout this episode because every quote from a person I read who knew her called her Ma. I didn't come across anyone who actually called her Gertrude. She was the second of five children of Ella and Thomas Pridgett. The only information that Lee gives and I understand has really found about Ella and Thomas is that Ella worked for the Central Railway of Georgia. We don't know what Thomas did for a living. He died in 1896 when Ma was 13. Okay. So we also don't have any information about what musical training Ma might have had, if any formal training at all. I have read some secondary sources that suggest that either Ella and Thomas or Ma's grandmother were vaudeville or minstrel performers, and we'll talk about exactly what that entails later on. But um, I haven't seen any primary sources for those claims, so I don't know if that's true or not. Ma's own first performance that we know of was in around 1900, so when she would have been about 14, at the Springer Opera House in her hometown of Columbus, Georgia, where she sung and danced as part of a local talent show. From this beginning, Ma began traveling and performing around the American South as part of black minstrel shows. So just to give a bit of background on what minstrel shows are, minstrel shows were originally begun around the 1840s by white performers, often in blackface, and they were variety shows that were generally based around stereotypes of black people and black culture. By the 1850s, black people were also performing their own minstrel shows, which started with very similar content, but gradually over the next few decades began to focus on more genuine depictions of black culture. So these were the kind of shows which Ma started out her career performing in. As Ma told musicologist John Wesley Work Jr. in the 1930s, it was while traveling with one of these shows in Missouri in 1902 that she encountered a woman singing a song about a man who had left her, which Ma described as so strange and poignant that it immediately caught everyone's attention. Ma asked the woman to teach her the song and began incorporating it into her act where it was a big hit with audiences. Work then writes, Many times she was asked what kind of song it was, and one day she replied in a moment of inspiration, it's the blues. So this story seems to imply that Ma herself both popularized and named the blues. I was about to ask about that. It doesn't seem That sounds very apocryphal. (laughs) It is highly apocryphal. So she was one of the most famous early blues singers and one of the earliest blues singers whose names we know. Mm. But this definitely seems like, you know, a fake story, essentially a marketing ploy, especially she went on to tell work that all newspaper references to her singing the blues that early in her career had been destroyed in a fire. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, destroyed in a fire. (laughs) My dog ate it of history. Every single, every single newspaper in the entire state between like that decade, all gone. Yeah. One fire. (laughs) One big, big fire. Yeah. Yeah. At the newspaper hall. Where everyone keeps their newspapers. The one copy. Including private citizens. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, <laughs> correct. Yeah, so for what it's worth, the term blues is first recorded in writing in reference to the music style in 1912, so that is 10 years after Ma claims to have coined the word. But the style of music had definitely been around for much longer, and Ma definitely did not single-handedly spread it around the American South, which is what she seems to imply. The fact that it's in writing in 1912 probably suggests it's in general use much earlier. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And there was kind of a movement starting around around 1912 to start writing down blues music Mm. so you know it wasn't written down because no one had started writing down blues yet not because it didn't exist yeah Yeah, although you know the fact that she says she coined the term 10 years earlier kind of maybe she did you know that gives it like a little bit of credit (laughs) 
I'm presume... not saying it's true. It obviously, as I said, sounds quite apocryphal, but you know. I presume that at least the timeline is not wildly off and she's not like, I invented blues in 1902 and blues has been here for a hundred years. Like, yeah, like the timeline is on, on the right track. Actually. She could have invented the word in 1902. Did it happen? Probably not. Yeah. But yeah, blues itself had been around for much longer. So it grew out of African American work songs, which in turn were based off West African traditions. And it was spread throughout the American South by itinerant workers in the second half of the 19th century and then it was gradually taken up by minstrel shows and further popularized that way so going back to ma's life at 17 ma married fellow performer will rainey more often known as pa rainey <laughs> um but they just they're like yeah we are the mum and the dad what are you gonna do about it pretty much yeah so they were on this like minstrel circuit for a long time so like by the time they were kind of finishing up and she was moving on to her recording career which we'll talk about later they were some of the older performers and they kind of were just like the mum and dad of the minstrel circuit okay so that's why they're called ma and pa they also fostered quite a few children I couldn't okay. find much information about most of these children. One was called Danny and he performed as part of their shows. He did female impersonations and he danced. And Okay. But there were other children, I believe. They didn't have any biological children, but they did foster children or adopt children. So they toured around as part of various minstrel shows for the first two decades of the 20th century, including touring from 1914 to 1916 as Rainy and Rainy Assassinators of the Blues. <laughs> That's quite badass. Yeah. Quite an excellent name. It is yeah. good. So Mara in particular grew increasingly famous as they toured. She had a very strong voice, which was particularly important at this time before there was any electronic amplification. She was also known for her dancing and her comedy skits, which unfortunately we have no record of because unlike her music, they were never recorded. As Michael in fame, she would sometimes also be contracted to perform at white parties, although her guitarist Sam Chapman recalls that while she was popular with white audiences, she always preferred black audiences, and after these white parties, she could generally be found at local cafes hanging out with other African-American people. So as I've mentioned, Ma did play a maternal role to the other performers, hence the name Ma, and she was also very like supportive of them, including financially. Pianist Lionel Hampton, who knew her a little later in her life, but I think this is evidence of her character and probably similar to what she did at the time, said of her, I used to dream of joining Ma Rainey's band because she treated her musicians so wonderfully and she always bought them an instrument. Oh, nice. I would join her band too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Thomas Dorsey, who worked at the 81 Theatre in Atlanta, Georgia, also recalls Ma coming into the theatre to teach other women there to sing including Bessie Smith, who launched her own very successful blues career from that same theatre in the mid to late 1910s. Oh, I see. Bessie Smith was in the movie. Yeah, Bessie Smith was in the movie. So they had a kind of professional rivalry. Yeah. Which is addressed in the movie. Yeah. Was there professional rivalry in real life, like antagonistic or? We'll discuss. Okay. (laughs) Was it romantic? We'll discuss. Oh. So let's talk about Bessie, just so you know who Bessie is. Bessie was eight years younger than Ma, and she came from Chattanooga in Tennessee. So there was a rumor that Ma had discovered Bessie as a performer while Ma herself was touring in Chattanooga. And then, this rumor goes on to tell us, Ma had kidnapped her and taken her on tour, teaching her to sing as they toured. I couldn't find any source for this rumor. I literally never found it written down as like, there was a rumor that I didn't find anyone even claiming that it was true. Okay. But it existed in Ma and Bessie's lifetime. And Bessie's sister-in-law, Maud, recalls the two of them like sitting around laughing about the fact that this story existed. (laughs) So in reality, Bessie had worked her first professional job as a dancer in 1912 in a traveling show in which Ma had also performed. So it's likely they just met because they were part of the same performing troupe. And then they encountered each other again at the 81 Theatre. Bessie always denied Ma's influence on her career and the claim that Ma had taught her to sing the blues. That's probably because they professionally filled quite similar spaces. They were recording at the same time and kind of filling the same niche in the market. So Bessie wanted to distinguish herself and not be seen as kind of like a lesser Ma or Ma's protege or anything like that. Personally, however, they were friends and possibly more than friends, as we'll discuss in a moment. So they were very different people. Bessie was known to have a very fiery temper. She drank very hard. She'd often get into fights. 
Ma was considered to be like a very warm and nicely spoken person. She wouldn't let people drink at her shows. She wouldn't swear and so on. So the Ma Rainey who is depicted in the movie is not particularly accurate to what we know of how Ma Rainey was or was she just like different interacting with her like recording studio manager people because it was hell. She is described later in life as like becoming less warm and generous and we're talking about a younger Ma here. Yeah it definitely comes across in the movie I felt that Ma kind of has experienced somewhat of a fall from grace by the time the events of the movie are occurring and that you know based on her relationship with her girlfriend and kind of a little bit her relationship with the other band members like aside from Levy who's obviously a recent addition that kind of she's a little bit kind of coasting by on goodwill Mm. based on having been a lot nicer back (laughs) in the day and I think it's also like this is taking place in the south and in the film we see her as an older person in the north and that's like a vastly different environment where like in the north she's fighting a lot more with Mm. for respect from white people and I think that's a lot of the character we see in the film whereas in the south she's much more among black people performing much more just live for a black audience she did also perform for white and mixed audiences but you know she's much more just kind of in a black space yeah where she's not that and I guess in the north that does also come across in the movie because like several times when things aren't going the way she wants to she says I could just go back to the south I can go back to my touring yeah I don't need this yeah it's yeah, a yeah. like consistent theme that they got across very strongly yeah in the film. yeah um, and and you know she also specifically talks about that she is being rude for a specific reason and, yeah and it does kind of come across like you know to sort of get into a bit of discussion about the movie it does kind of come across like she's been fighting so much in the north that it's kind of infected the mm. rest of her interactions yeah yeah that's true too but at the same time like you do see a contrast like if you consider how she treats sylvester her nephew mm. she's like very kind very mm. patient with sylvester and she talks about like oh you know you're gonna take this money home and give it to your mom and tell her how you're doing and like that's a very different side of her yeah. so we do see that as well yeah. yeah yeah you get kind of like hints of that tenderness yeah, but yeah. Like, you can kind of see how yeah like there's still that tenderness with her family member but mm. with these other black musicians who you know she clearly at some point was at least was quite good friends with she's mm. kind of quite distant from yeah yeah you do have that one conversation she has with cutler where she kind of talks about the importance of the blues and they're like they have like quite a nice touching conversation where they sit together and kind of like talk about what they're doing and the music yeah, and everything yeah where you do kind of see that connection that she has with her band members yeah it, it actually i think it would have been good to raise and i'm you know not necessarily aware whether the playwright was aware of this mm. but the thing of her buying the instruments for the band members yeah i yeah. feel like that would have been a good thing to be thrown into that script yeah yeah to yeah. kind of like indicate why exactly the other band members are so loyal to her yeah and it also yeah. would have made like such a contrast to the way that the recording studio is treating all of them mm, and like mm. the stinginess of the, the white men and like the whole final section of that movie before the murder goes down is everyone like struggling to get paid and being like no i need it in cash not a check mm. no you have to pay this person his own wage you can't take it out of my way yeah yeah um and levy getting like five dollars a piece for his songs mm, mm. and then to show her being that generous by contrast i guess yeah 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 i think that would have been a good thing to include but unfortunately august wilson did not i think august wilson honestly dealt well with a lot of there's a lot in that movie and i think a lot of it's very well handled yeah i think there are some things that like some pieces of media like books or plays or whatever that you're seeing and you're like this is almost made to be studied yeah like rather than just made to be watched and be like oh yeah like it's made to be like picked apart and studied and like written essays about yeah i feel like that would go down extremely well as like a high school play yeah yeah so to move on from that talking about ma and bessie ma's guitarist sam chapman said in an interview i believe ma was courting bessie i believe one or the other of them was the man the other one was the girl i believe ma rainey was the one was cutting up like a man if Bessie would get talking to another man, she'd run up. She didn't want no man to talk with her. So as far as I'm aware, that's the only explicit reference we have to Mars queerness from somebody who knew her. Okay. But that said, it's also a pretty clear statement. Pretty clear and pretty queer. How well did he know her? Like, were they friends or were they just professional relationship? Or I don't really know exactly what the relationship yeah. between them was. Like, I know he was interviewed for writing about her, but I don't know if they were, like, friends or how long he was in her band, unfortunately. I just sort of wonder whether, like, what level of certainty we should take his I believe on. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he could have just seen Ma and Bessie hanging out and been like, 
that seems pretty gay. I guess one's the guy and one's the girl. Or he could have been like, yeah, I'm good friends with Ma and I know that like they're in a relationship and she's fulfilling what I would see as the masculine role. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess there's two things that make me feel more positive about that mm. piece of evidence. One of which is what you already talked about in terms of Ma being very friendly with her band members. Mm. Like, mm. isn't a musician who was very aloof and mm. like, yeah. private, yeah, distant from mm. her band. And then also the fact that there's reference in that quote to kind of like repeated incidents, like different yeah. men going after Bessie mm. and mm. then Ma going up to them yeah. and, you know, making a bit of a scene. Yeah, and I guess like saying if Bessie had get talking to another man, she'd run up. Like, that sounds like I have witnessed this. Like, yeah. Sam Chapman's not just being like, I reckon this. He's like, this is what happened. Yeah. As you say, it's obviously like it's pretty direct, but also somewhat circumstantial in terms of us not necessarily knowing the exact nature of his relationship with her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's a couple of things there that make me feel pretty positively about that. Yeah. To be clear, like, I want to believe as much as the rest of you that Ma Rainey was queer, but also like if I were like a woman performer in the 1920s and this was my eight years younger protege, I would be watching her every time a man spoke to her. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Even if we had like a professional relationship and nothing more. That's a fair point too. Yeah, no, that's true. I feel yeah. like even without a relationship with that like age difference and the like sort of mentor relationship. Mm. Even if she didn't teach Bessie to sing, like other yeah. people who knew them do say that she kind of had a like kind of motherly yeah. role to Bessie. And just in terms of like being an older person, like a motherly figure to the troupe in general, yeah. I feel like I would kind of expect her to do that kind of looking out for younger women. That's true too. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. Having said that, it's entirely possible that this guy was like best friends with Ma Rainey and was like, yeah, those two, I believe they were gay. Yeah. So there is another queer story about Ma Rainey that is unfortunately unsourced and also much more sensational, which immediately rings alarm bells. Yep. <laughs> After three and a half years of this podcast. Yep. <laughs> yeah. In his 1972 biography of Bessie Smith, and this is kind of the first source I could find for it, but that doesn't mean it's the earliest source. This biography didn't provide a source for this story, so I couldn't chase it further back. Yep. So it's by music journalist Chris Albertson. He wrote a biography of Bessie, mm-hmm. and he recounts a story of a 1925 incident where the police were called to Ma's house on a noise complaint about a party she was hosting with a group of other women. To quote Albertson, Unfortunately for Ma and her girls, the law arrived just as the impromptu party got intimate. There was pandemonium as everyone madly scrambled for her clothes and ran out the back door. Ma apparently didn't make the mad scramble in time, was arrested and was bailed out of jail the next day by Bessie Smith. The story is all over the internet. It's something people love to say about Ma. I haven't found a source for it. Okay. Albertson's biography does also have, like, I didn't read the full biography because it was a biography of Bessie and, you know, we're talking about yeah. Ma today. It did seem to have quite a few footnotes, but that story didn't have one. Okay. Which is, you know, odd, kind of sus. But where he pulled it from, I don't know. Yeah, and the, the stories of music journalists are notoriously pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it could have been just a story that he had heard as a music journalist, mm. just kind of, you know, around. Yeah. yeah. And whether there was any truth to it. Yeah. Who knows? You know, maybe Ma just was arrested on a noise complaint and there was no orgy at her house. Or, you know, yeah, or I mean, maybe... there might have been someone who was nude at the house, but like... You know. Yeah, that yeah. doesn't immediately make a lesbian orgy. Yeah. In terms of Ma's relationships with men, Ma separated from Pa in the late teens, but she later remarried to another man about whom we know nothing, some guy. We do also have other stories about her being interested in men in general. So the poet Sterling Brown, who accompanied John Wesley Work, the musicologist who we talked about before, who interviewed Ma. Sterling Brown recalls Ma being very upfront about her interest in both Sterling and John Wesley Work and, like, making advances on both of them. Okay. <laughs> so if she was queer, she was bi. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that I trust uh, a guy being like, oh, yeah, this very famous woman came on to me <laughs> all that much. Yeah. That's true. That's a fair point. Yeah. yeah. Just also, like, yeah, like, if it was someone being like, oh, yeah, Ma was interested in this guy, I'd kind of be, like, more willing to believe yeah. it than Ma was interested in me and my friend. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. So staying on the queer theme, as we've talked about in previous episodes, in particular our episode on Gladys Bentley, Blues was a relatively accepting place for queerness, and there was a lot of quite open queerness in the Blues scene, particularly for women, as it had given them kind of a place where they could be independent from men. It was a way for women to have financial 
financial independence when there weren't many ways for women, especially black women, to have financial independence and to kind of express and talk about their sexuality and also a way to travel around and, you know, basically just be out of the house and do things that weren't being married in your home to a man. Queerness even sold well. And this is something we talked about, again, much more in depth on our episode on Gladys Bentley, who built her career in the 20s and 30s in New York around an image as a butch lesbian blues singer. So if you want to learn a lot more about that, I'd encourage you to check out that episode. But generally, the idea of blues as this kind of sexually liberated and also somewhat salacious genre sold very well, especially to white audiences who saw themselves as kind of partaking in this exciting, risque thing and being adventurous by like going out and seeing blues and listening to blues. Yeah, I mean, that also reminds me of when I was doing research into Paris is Burning and there was a lot of discussion about the drag scene in the 70s and how kind of white audiences would go to see the drag shows as a kind of salacious, mm. illicit activity. Yeah. And the kind of tension between the kind of more authentic part of that scene and the part of that scene that was more financially lucrative. Absolutely. And the exact same thing was going on. We talked about it in Harlem in the episode on Gladys. And the exact same thing was going on in America's North mm. at this time. So to jump forward a little bit in Ma's career, it's probably unsurprising then that in 1920, 1920- 28, Paramount Records, with whom she was signed, published an ad for a new record which depicted Ma dressed in a man's suit and flirting with two women who were dressed in traditionally feminine clothing while a policeman watches them suspiciously. Oh, what? Okay. The text on the ad reads, What's this? Scandal? Maybe so, but you wouldn't have thought it of Ma Rainey. But look at that cop watching her. What does it all mean? Old ads. They're just not very good at marketing. They're so I'm sorry, wordy. Say, <laughs> you want to go down to Chicago and see some singers? <laughs> they might be gay. <laughs> I don't even know what that means because I'm an old tiny announcer. <laughs> so the song was called Prove It On Me Blues, in which Ma takes on the role, as the picture implies, of a butch queer woman singing about her masculine presentation and her relationships with other women. Are the lyrics like explicitly about a masculine woman? Yes, like she specifically oh. sings about like, the line is like, I went out last night in my collar and tie, I think. Like she, she sings about the outfit she wears when she goes out. But it's like the lyrics are clearly a woman. Like, don't get me wrong, I guess as a queer woman singing songs that have that like plausible deniability, this is from the point of view of a man thing is absolutely a thing that queer women singers do. Mm, mm. But if the lyrics were like explicitly from the point of view of a woman, that I'm, would be quite interesting. I would say they are. Like, for example, and I could read you the whole song and that would probably be the best way to do it, but like, we won't do that on this podcast. One of the verses goes, I went out last night with a crowd of my friends. It must have been women because I don't like no men. Wear my clothes just like a fan. Talk to the girls just like any old man. Yeah, okay. So it's really singing That's... like, I am a woman who is fulfilling the role of a man. Like, I am a masculine yeah. woman. It's like very clear. And especially when you consider it with that ad, where yeah. she, like, it is her dressed in a suit yeah yeah it's, like it's it's more of a stretch to interpret that as her singing in the persona of a man than it is to interpret that as her singing in the persona of a woman who dresses like a man yeah it's not really about plausible deniability here yeah no that's fair yeah. that's fair which um, is pretty awesome yeah yeah it is pretty cool so Lieb describes proven on me blues as quote a powerful statement of lesbian defiance and self-worth and she talks about how the lyrics acknowledge the disapproval of society so there's a line which as folks say I'm crooked, but at the same time have a boastful tone about the woman's relationships with the line, I want the whole world to know. Yet despite Ma's own possible, probable, however you want to interpret that, queerness, the lyrics she wrote, and she did write the lyrics, for Prove It On Me, don't appear to be about her personal experience and herself as a person. So although Sam Chapman describes her as the man in her relationship with Bessie, we don't have any evidence of her actually adopting the masculine presentation that is depicted in that ad. Nobody else talks about it at all in her life and that is as much of a focus of the song as the singer's sexuality so she's kind of taking on the persona of this butch woman rather than talking about herself because of the way the label was so obviously playing up this queer image in the ad mary cassock who wrote a recent master's thesis about the queerness of ma and of gladys bentley suggests that ma's queer image may have been something completely fabricated by paramount 
oh, rather than something that yeah. Ma herself decided to sort of go public with herself being queer. It might have been a company decision. That's really interesting, the idea that she may have had this authentic queer identity that was mm. kind of kept on down low and that she was kind of not expressing harshly through like, you know, probably through potential fear of reprisal and prejudice mm. and then to potentially have this situation Have like a fake queer identity. There's this fake queer identity that's been created for her specifically for the purpose to sell records. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, there's so many layers there. <laughs> yeah, like if she's got this like marketable butch woman queer identity which is mm. not her everyday life expression at all. Yeah, yeah. So despite all these layers of fake and real queerness that may or may not have existed, Ma in the modern day and especially because she is depicted as queer in the film when you're reading kind of people talking about the historical figure but through the context of the film it's just understood as queer and talked about as queer as a fact. Such a like reverse situation of the usual historical figure <laughs> situation where there's like a wealth of friends being like, ah, oh, yes, when she went out with her girlfriend and they kissed, it was very sweet. Yes. Um, and then everyone's like, ah, oh, what good friends they must have been. Yes. And well, in this case, it's like, we don't know for 100% sure, probably, but like everyone else is like, oh, yeah, Ma Rainey. And specifically referred to as bisexual, which you also never see. Yeah. Oh, that is surprising. So like, it's refreshing. I'm yeah. not mad about it, even though I feel like there's more historical analysis to be done. Like, So like Viola Davis, who played Ma in the film, for example, has spoken about Ma's bisexuality in interviews. And she's kind of talked about Prove It On Me, the song, as an example of this. And she talks about the way this shows Ma's pride in her sexuality and says she was unapologetic about her sexuality. I just feel like playing her. I had to honor that. I don't care how uncomfortable people feel with bisexuality. Ma Rainey was bisexual, which is nice. Possibly true. <laughs> It's nice to hear. <laughs> That's also interesting because, you know, I didn't necessarily get the feeling that she was bisexual watching the film. Well, I mean, she definitely has the thing going on with Dossie May. Yeah, that's very clear. Yeah, we don't see her with any men. And I think that's the interesting thing here is that it's so common that even in the face of a wealth of evidence that someone's bisexual, people will be like, ah, yes, the lesbian. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting, therefore, to me that Viola Davis is saying this person is bisexual. Hmm. And I wanted to play her like that. And I wonder if there were maybe some cut scenes or anything from the movie that, like, played into that a bit more. But also, I mean, once Viola Davis, I guess, has the historical context of knowing that Ma Rainey is into both men and women, probably. Like, we know she's married. Mm, yeah, she married twice. We know that she maybe had a girlfriend. Mm. Mm. Like, if Viola Davis has that context, it makes sense for her to be like, ah, oh, yes, I knew she was a bisexual woman and wanted to honour that. Like, how else is she going? going to speak about that knowing about Ma Rainey as a yeah, historical yeah, figure, yeah, you know? Yeah. Even if her attraction to men never comes up, mm, mm. we only see her with Darcy May in the film. Like, Yeah, okay. yeah. I guess like, yeah, no, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She can't kind of like throw it out the window just because the audience only sees one yeah, part yeah. of Ma Rainey's sexuality. Yeah, and Viola Davis and like all the actors in this film, but like Viola Davis, they all go really deep into the character and like what we see is like a tiny bit of like what she understands about Ma and how she's thinking about Ma. Like, I think if Viola Davis is talking about Ma, she's understanding Ma's whole life. She's not thinking about what you saw on the yeah, screen. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Talking about the depictions of Ma's queerness in the film, I did read one critique of the depiction of the relationship between Ma and Dussie May. So Taylor Hosking, who is a writer for the women's magazine The Lily, argues that the film is a negative and outdated portrayal of female bisexuality. So her argument is basically that Wilson, who is a straight and light-skinned black man, couldn't comprehend how a woman could be attracted to a dark-skinned and not conventionally attractive black woman, and therefore has created this relationship where Dossie May appears to only be interested in Ma for her luxurious lifestyle and her money, and you don't really see a like genuine relationship between the two of them. I definitely think it's one of those situations where because you only see one queer relationship in mm. the film, if you don't perceive that queer relationship well, you know, then it doesn't come across as a good representation of queer people, obviously. The feeling that I got watching that was this vibe that like Ma Rainey was like older, maybe a little bit past her prime Mm-mm. and kind of clinging to Darcy May. Like that's sort of the vibe you get when you see her like 
like everyone's warning Levy to be afraid of what Ma's going to do if she finds out that he's been with Darcy May. With Darcy May, mm, yeah. Mm. And meanwhile, Darcy May has no problem at all in the film, like being with Ma and then turning around two scenes later and locking herself in the rehearsal room with Levy. Yeah. So you do get the impression in the film that Ma is much more invested in Darcy May than Darcy May is in Ma. Yeah, I don't think Hosking's comments come out of nowhere and like I, I fully see why she she said what she said. I didn't think it when I watched the movie, but I see why if you were quite excited to see a movie about Ma Rainey, who you see as this queer icon, which is kind of the way she writes about it. She's like, I was excited and then I was disappointed. If you had that going in, you'd be like, oh, that was it? That's the queer relationship you're going to give me? Yeah, I definitely think if you were going into this movie as a fan of Ma Rainey as a queer icon, Mm. you would be disappointed in this movie. It's a very good exploration of like race in the US Mm. I say as a white person in Australia (laughs) I know nothing about this to be clear but it seemed very insightful to me in a lot Mm. of ways but I don't think it was insightful about the queerness yeah no I Um, agree with you there I don't think it says anything about queerness yeah Yeah, I think to me like the shallowness of the relationship between Ma and Dussie is kind of reflective of what we were talking about earlier in terms of the way in which Ma got kind of sidelined a little Mm. bit in the plot and therefore in the film. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, I think and, that's true. you know, I can sort of totally understand that interpretation that this critic has given in terms of this feeling kind of like the director doesn't understand mm. that kind of queer desire mm, yeah. properly. But yeah, I, I, I can kind of see how from the playwright's perspective, once you have kind of sidelined Mara a bit, then you're kind of investing more into Levy as a character. Mm. And, you know, then the contrasting of the relationships... And the nature of them and Dusty mm. going after him kind of like it feels more like mechanical. Yeah. Yeah. In yeah. terms of like the reason why Dusty is not super close with Ma is because her getting with Levy is part of the plot. Yeah. No, that's true. Because, yeah, I do feel like Dusty feels, as we kind of talked about, as yeah. you referred to earlier, Irene, she feels a bit like underdeveloped in terms of her role and like what she is representing. Mm. Yeah. Um, in terms of black culture. And so, therefore, you know, her like, relationships also feel kind of underdeveloped. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think there's a couple of deeper, not necessarily flaws, but deeper issues that if you're going into this play or this movie expecting one kind of experience will then lead to the kind of experience that you're describing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Interestingly, going back to the way Mars sexuality is talked about today, modern conversations about Mars sexuality, and you know, all the articles I read about this film, often skip over the role of queerness in broader blues culture, and they depict Ma as kind of an outlier rather than being with in a context of a culture where like Prima on Me is far from the only queer blues song. We've talked about Gladys Bentley and there are several other examples of people who were singing songs that were explicitly about being queer and especially about being butch women. But rather than seeing Ma's public queerness in Prima on Me blues as kind of sitting within this culture, it's often depicted as this uniquely defiant act in an era that's seen as having no other public queerness. In an article for Esquire, Olivia Ovenden writes, her lyrics were groundbreaking in their celebration of this identity. Hosking writes that her queerness was practically unheard of at the time. This is so bizarre, and I think we see this every time we encounter someone who is active in the 20s. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, what? Like, notoriously <laughs> one of the most, like, at least the most well-documented yeah. queer yeah. historical era that we have. I think for people who don't really have any background in history, you often get this mentality of a linear progression that we have been on since, I don't know, the medieval times of just increasing queerness. Zero queer, and now we're up to, like, 98 queer, and soon we'll hit 100. Yeah, and in the 20s, I guess we were still at, like, 50 queer. And so people just kind of assume, oh, if that was 100 years ago, there must have been no queer people and everyone must have been homophobic, which is not the case. (laughs) But if you've made it as far in writing your article about Ma Rainey as to, like, read her lyrics and things like that, then Mm. surely you can, like, do a little bit, like, a step further and be like, was this unusual at the time? Yeah, rather than just making that assumption. You can't just, like, read people's lyrics in isolation and be like, well, I haven't read any other queer blues songs from 1925 because I haven't read any blues songs from 1925, <laughs> so I 
guess that this is the only one. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like even not just in the 20s, like mm. that's a general problem you run into when you read about any individual queer person is that a lot of people will kind of invariably write, this was the first person to do this. This was the first person to marry their wife. Mm. This was the first person to. And when you actually look into it, you're like, no, this was a community. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, yeah. you know, that's that's the podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's but like, yeah. I just think it's particularly funny in the context of the 20s. Where there's just like a wealth of like written evidence of this. Yeah. 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 To go back to the Paris is Burning episode again, you know, where I was like, oh, wow, we just literally have like many newspaper clippings talking mm. about drag balls in the 20s. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, okay. Like, this is not not even a question that this was around like pre-World War II. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like when we talked about Gladys Bentley, we talked about like women getting married in the 30s and having a priest and having a wedding. Like, yeah, yeah. It wasn't just like individual people on their own and Ma was one of the very first. Yeah, she may or may not have pioneered the term blues, but she definitely <laughs> did not pioneer lesbianism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm imagining if, like, a hundred years in the future, some historian is like, ah, yes, queer as fact, a bastion of queer stuff in a heterosexual world. (laughs) Like, not wrong, but also not the whole picture. Yeah, yeah. Not wrong, but not right. I don't want to paint the 20s as a queer utopia. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. there was homophobia. There were, you know. Because, yeah, you do get a little bit of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like, where people are like, oh, my God, it was such a utopian Mm. kind of time. Yeah. Because, you know, there's kind of that genre a person who has like read little tidbits like yeah. you know this lesbian orgy that Ma was allegedly involved in and they're kind of like wow this sounds so amazing yeah yeah. I mean I guess again it's the same thing as now you could conversely easily look back at now from a hundred years from now and be like oh yeah in Australia being queer was completely fine yeah and like that's not the case but if you've read a few random things <laughs> yeah. you could be like <laughs> yeah. yep it was legal yep you know there were public queer figures yep there, there were like public, public queer, queer events, events. Yeah. yeah yeah there were queer podcasters. (laughs) (laughs) So going back to Ma's biography, in the 1910s and the 1920s, as you probably know from having watched this film, many black people, and maybe just from history, many black people began to migrate from America's southern states into the north, hoping for better economic prospects and also bringing their music with them. So in 1920, Mamie Smith became the first African-American person to record a blues record. Her record, That Thing Called Love, was incredibly popular, selling 10,000 copies in its first month. With Mamie's popularity, record companies began establishing separate race records, which specifically recorded black music, catering to both black and white audiences, and they began recruiting more black artists to cash in on the success of the blues. So in 1923, Ma landed her own recording contract and moved from the South to Chicago to begin her recording career with Paramount, which was one of the leading race record companies. So Ma would go on to record at least 92 songs with Paramount over the next five years. 92 songs in five years is good going. It is, yeah. They really churned them out. Like if Taylor Swift maintains the rate she's had during (laughs) COVID. Yeah, she'll catch up, yeah. That's some plague-level songwriting. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, dear. Do you know anything about the relationship that she had with the recording studio? I don't really know anything about her specific relationship with the recording studio. I know that, like, recording contracts at the time were generally pretty exploitative and, like, black singers and performers did not see a lot of the money that was made off their records. That said, like, she was pretty well off off the money she made off this and she was also able to send money to to her family. Okay. And she was known to be quite, like, savvy. Okay. As, you know, as she is depicted in the film. But I don't know anything about the specific relationships she had with the recording studio or managers or anything like that. Who was the family at home she was sending money to? So she was one of five siblings. Okay. So, and her mother was still alive at this time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So talking about Mars recordings, there's probably a good point to talk a bit about the different styles of blues, which is something that's quite key to the film. So early 20th century blues can be broadly divided into two categories. One is known as folk blues or country blues or traditional blues. And the other is known as classic blues or city blues. So folk blues is often performed accompanied by easily portable instruments such as the banjo or the guitar or more improvised instruments like the washboard or the spoons. And you can hear in the movie, Levy refers disparagingly to Mars music as old jug band music, which refers to literally playing music by blowing across the mouth of like a narrow mouth jug like you do with a beer bottle. Oh, really? 
Yeah, that's why it's called a jug band. But then you can only play one note. They don't do it exactly like you do with a beer bottle. It's more like you do your lips like a trumpet and you do the notes and the bottle amplifies them. Okay, you like make a kazoo noise into a, into a jug. Yeah. So I'm just going to play you a quick example of this music so we can hear what it sounds like. So in contrast to folk blues, you then have classic blues, which grew from the tradition of folk blues and through the influence of other vaudeville music, so music that came from a European background. And it changed as musicians became more professionalized and started performing in those like minstrel shows, for example, that I talked about Ma being in. So performers were more likely to be backed up by a chorus and to be accompanied by pianists and professional jazz bands. Songs were more likely to be composed by one individual than to be traditional pieces. And with the migration of many black people to the northern states, classic blues was the style which first really reached the north and then reached across the USA through recording. So I'll play you an example now of that style of blues. So both those examples that I just played you are both Ma. Okay. So as you can tell from that, her music sits somewhere between the two styles mm-hmm. of folk blues and classic blues. Are they from like different times or was she doing both of these styles like concurrently? She did do both of these styles concurrently. Actually, later on in her career, she recorded more folk blues. Okay. But she did just do both styles concurrently as well. Yeah. 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 Ma plays what is kind of called classic blues, but is a very folk blues style classic blues (laughs) (laughs) so like she played that one i played lost wandering blues which has the like really twangy that folk blues one i played for you like she did play that so she played really folk blues stuff but she also played classic blues that was quite folk blues influenced which is sort of why august wilson has chosen her to represent the old style of blues in contrast to a newer style of blues so even her classic blues is like old yeah folk classic blues yeah like ma is playing classic blues with a strong folk influence which represents in the film and I guess in real life represents the really strong cultural connection that she has to the south because she has that folk blues influence whereas Levy is taking blues in the other direction towards like swing and jazz and these styles like swing and jazz were styles that were really popular among white northern audiences and like seen as dance music and party music yeah and so that was like the next step after classic blues I played you the next step in that mm, yeah. chronological progression. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I'd have to go back and watch the relevant scenes in the movie again. Mm-hmm. But I definitely felt from those two little recordings that you played a much easier understanding of the distinction between the two styles than I felt from the performance scenes in the movie. Mm. So in the movie, they're talking a bit less about like the folk blues, classic blues distinction. And then they're also kind of moving on to talking about the kind of blues, jazz and blues swing distinction. So the distinction would be much less clear in the film because you're hearing a distinction in the film between classic blues with folk influence and like jazz swing blues. I think it's also is much less clear because like inherently the nature of the story is that you're hearing the same band doing yeah. like essentially the same instrumentation. It definitely felt like if I had like a formal music education and had a good understanding of like these instruments and yeah. style mm-hmm. of music that I would get a lot more out of those scenes because it kind yeah. of, you know, it may I think to the lay person makes Levy's complaining and disparaging of Mark's mm. style feel a lot more petty than I feel it probably actually is. Yeah, it's just interesting because I feel like if you play something like that second piece of music mm. in the movie and then have something a bit more like what they actually do play in the movie, mm. it's a much more obvious distinction. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know? And like, especially given that they have a flashback performance scene at the start of the film, it just feels like, I don't know, to me that. I, as I said, I would have to go back and listen to mm. the music in those scenes again with kind of the understanding of what the core conflict musically is in the movie now. Yeah. 
that. Yeah, and probably as a person with no musical training, they probably could have been clearer. Like, yeah. they could have chosen yeah. music with stronger contrast. Yeah, like, given that Ma did perform that kind of music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Given that she performed across those styles, they um. could have easily showed that greater contrast and, like, showed her in an early tent show playing that, like, jug band music yeah. and then shown her with a jazz band and then... You would have understood what she's doing. You would have seen yeah. the, the progression of Southern music to kind of the adaptation you saw in the North with, like, classic blues, and then you could have seen the next step yeah, of Levy like, trying to play something that would really appeal to these white audiences. If you think about the movie, like, the scene where that, like, musical conflict is most clear is that one where Levy plays his trumpet intro and then the rest of the band comes in and just, like, drops the tempo immediately. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I guess if you don't have the musical awareness, it might not just doesn't stick out to you. And they do make him say something about it. Mm. Like, he does say something like, keep up, boys, or whatever. Yeah. Mm. I forget exactly what he said, but it was something to that effect. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it would be more obvious on a rewatch. Like, kind of not knowing going in exactly what the movie was about. Mm. um, Yeah. And how much the musical conflict kind of represented the racial tension. Yeah. Mm. And the, like, cultural tension between the North and South. Yeah. 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 I think, and especially, yeah, as I said, I'm not just someone who a musical layperson I'm also someone who just has a generally pretty bad ear for music mm-hmm. um, even by the standards of people without a formal education so you know. yeah yeah I did think that final scene where there's like the awkward white jazz band playing one of Levy's songs mm. was just like a stroke of genius in filmmaking oh honestly. yeah that was yeah. fantastic yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And, the, and the way that they're all they're like seated and they've got a conductor yeah and, and they've all got like is... this like slicked hair and they all have dead faces yeah and like when you see like when mars band plays like when they do that one that like successful take they're all like so happy and they're all like so into it and they're all like you know yeah kind of like congratulating each other afterwards and like bouncing off each other and like the white band is dead the white band is like this school orchestra jazz band situation (laughs) yeah yeah like it's it's work yeah 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 Yeah. you know it's there's no passion there's no artistry Yeah. yeah and even one of them i can't remember what his instrument he's playing but it might be the singer even the one of them who's like at the front is like doing the gestures and he's doing the faces but at the same time like it's clearly it's really put doing on. them yeah. yeah 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 that was a really really effective way to end the film mm. yeah 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 i thought like it was almost heavy-handed but at the same time i do think it was good yeah oh it, de- it definitely was heavy-handed but sometimes a heavy hand is good yeah yeah that's true heavy-handed but not bad i guess yeah yeah in 1924 paramount booked ma as part of a variety show on a tour of the south through a group called Toba, the theatre owner's booking agency. Mars Act would open with a large Victrola on stage. So a Victrola is like one of those big old gramophone things. Someone would place a record on the Victrola. Ma would sing a few bars of music out of sight before emerging from the Victrola in a glittering gown and gold jewellery to complete the performance. Oh, nice. Okay. (laughs) An excellent entrance. It is an excellent entrance. The first show took seven curtain calls. It was very popular. (laughs) And they took it all around the American South. Touring with Toba was grueling work and, you know, as we've talked about throughout this episode, black artists were exploited. The performers joked that the acronym T-O-B-A stood for Tough on Black Artists. Oof. Yeah. (laughs) They could do five or six shows in a day with low pay and poor backstage facilities. How do they even fit five shows into a day? Who comes to, like, the 11 a.m. show? I don't know. Somebody does. They also... Families, I guess. They also do... Did shows much later than we would now consider doing a show. Like when you read about people in the 20s, they'll be like, yeah, we did the seven show, then the nine show, then the 11 show, then the one show. And you're like, you did what now? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is like not a thing that we have now. Okay. But the upside of it was that it did offer steady employment and most do seem to have like enjoyed their time like with each other, Mm. touring with Toba, if not enjoying the way they were treated. From about 1927, incidentally, the year the play is set, the blues industry began to decline. With the rise of radio, records and film, there was much less space for the plethora of blues artists who were still influenced by those older traditional sounds of folk blues. And there was much more of a trend towards a smaller number of more professionalized commercial artists reaching a larger audience through record and radio. And as I mentioned before, swing and jazz, which were both popular because they were good party music, became increasingly popular and they were especially popular with Northern audiences. 
1928, Paramount terminated Ma's contract with the executive Charles Smith later explaining her down-home material had gone out of fashion. In May the next year, the producer and seven performers on the show Ma was working with walked out because they hadn't been paid. The trend worsened as the Depression hit. Toba closed in 1930, and as Ma's pianist Thomas Dorsey puts it, the blues ran out. It just seemed like the whole thing changed around, and there wasn't no work for anybody. The record companies, they started publicizing other types of music. Ma returned to touring at carnival and tent shows in the South. There was less money in the business, and Ma and her band suffered for it, and as I said before, she's remembered at this point as being much less open and generous and kind than she was known to be earlier in her life. I mean, this makes sense. You can't be as generous when you don't have as much money. Yeah, that's true. You, can't you can't do that. And, and especially, you know, it's like easier to be generous when you're on the way up than it is yeah. when you're on the way down. Yeah. Like, no matter how good you are as a person. Yeah. But even just like practically, if you can't afford to buy people their musical instruments, you can't do it, right? That's true. Yeah. yeah. No. And like, you know, any reasonable person would be pretty bitter about that mm. event. Yeah. 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 Especially the way Thomas Dorsey puts it where he just says the blues ran out, like the commercial interest just disappeared. Yeah. And I mean the depression was a whole thing. Yeah, the depression was a whole thing, and it so happened that it also aligned with just yeah. a decrease in interest in blues. Yeah. Mm. In 1935, following the death of her mother and sister in the same year, Ma returned to her family home in Columbus. She bought and operated two theaters in Rome, Georgia, which supported her financially, and she basically ceased performing from that point. She passed away on December 22nd, 1939 from heart disease, aged just 53. Her death certificate lists her occupation as housekeeping. I think in the end, you know, I think Ma Rainey's story, as mm. you just told it to us, is really interesting and has a lot of parallels with just kind of the rise and fall of blues mm. in the northern states of the US. And yeah, it would have been nice to have a movie that dealt a bit more with that, but I, I would love to see at some point, you know, it, it's possible that we get that at some point. Yeah. You know, we, it'd be great to see Viola Davis reprise that role. <laughs> yeah. Like a, a more biographical movie of Ma Rainey. Yeah. yeah I was about to say, yeah. More, more of a biopic, mm. or, you know like even if it's not just a straight biography kind of movie just a movie that deals with a broader sweep of that rise and fall yeah rather than just containing it in a very theatrical mm. one day one room kind of way yeah. yeah using the full scope of the medium of film mm. yeah with that we've been queer as fact i'm alice i'm irene and i'm jason if you enjoyed this episode you can find us on facebook twitter and tumblr as queer as fact and you can also visit our website, queerasfact.com, where you can find the sources for all our episodes and links to all our social media and also our PO box if you want to write us a letter. You can find the rest of our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you find us on Apple Podcasts, we really appreciate it if you rate us and leave us a review out of five stars. If you'd like to support this podcast financially, you can become a patron and that will give you the chance to vote on the topics of our episodes and get some free merch. Speaking of merch, you can also support us financially by buying our merch off of Redbubble if you want to dress yourself in the Queer as Fact logo. It's very beautiful. We acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We'll be back on the 15th of January when Jason will be talking about the play and film The Boys in the Band. Thanks for listening and we'll see you then. 